From the Lean Enterprise Institute in Boston, this is the WLEI Podcast, where we share stories of people making the world better through lean thinking and practice. For more information about LEI, including how we can help you apply lean thinking, please visit lean.org. Welcome to the WLEI Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Savas, and today I'm speaking with Billy Taylor. Billy is a former operations executive at Goodyear and is now president of Linked Excel, a consulting group he founded. And he's the author of a book, The Winning Link, a proven process to define, align, and execute strategy at every level. Over the course of the conversation, we cover a lot of ground, like how Billy led a transformation at one of Goodyear's worst performing plants by instituting a few core principles like clarity, ownership, deliberate practice, and trust. We also talked about Billy's approach to scaling a management system from a single plant to multiple plants across North America when he was director of North American operations at Goodyear. And we discussed some of the current challenges facing companies when it comes to retaining workers in the post-COVID world. Let's jump in. Hi, everybody. Welcome to the WLEI podcast. I'm your host, Matt Savas, and I'm here with Billy Taylor. Billy, welcome to the podcast. Matt, thank you for having me. Uh, it's a, it's an honor to be on the show. You and I have connected at multiple events. Uh, and I tell you, our recent event when we were in Massachusetts was outstanding. So, yeah, was that was awesome. the uh, the GBMP conference with uh, our good friends uh, Bruce Hamilton and team at the Northeast Lean Conference. I will say, Billy, you gave a an amazing keynote speech. Uh, people were lining up to to meet you, deservedly so after that uh, great keynote. And we're going to dig into some of the stuff you talked about there. But before we do that, um, we always want to give the listener a little bit of background about who we're talking to. So could you go ahead and just give us a bit about who you are, where you're from, and what your career's been like? Absolutely. Uh, again, Billy Billy Taylor. I'm actually a Texan, uh, born and raised in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh I worked on my accent to get rid of some of the y'alls and the how howdies and those things. But I spent 30 years with Goodyear Tire and Rubber Company. And I, I actually started, I uh, graduated with an electrical engineering degree and never went into engineering, went right into management. And so I actually worked third shift 12 years, um, just wow. back shifts and learning operations from a four-level supervisor. I got hired as an engineer but went into the management program. And so I worked my way up from a floor level, third shift supervisor in the mixer center at Goodyear. I and actually became a production specialist uh, and worked my way as a business center manager and became a plant manager at, at a very young age, uh, a small plant in Arizona. And so I actually led several Goodyear plants, uh, their flagship plants, and then uh, led one of the worst plants and then actually ended up running North America for Goodyear. So spent 30 years with Goodyear. Uh, and then I branched out. I woke up one morning after 30 years, having coffee with my wife and said, it's been a good 30 years. It's time to go. Mm. And she goes, are you serious? And I says, it's, it's been a good 30 years. It's time to go. And she asked me, this was funny. And she says, what, what makes you think you're going to be successful in that? Because we're doing so well now. And I repeated something my mother said to me. She says, if a bird lands on the branch, does the bird trust the branch or does it trust its wings? And I says, you know what? I trust my wings. Something told me it's time. And so I retired and started LinkedXL 
it's an operating system architect firm and soon to be a software firm. So it's it, that's that's been my story. Yeah, amazing story. Starting out floor level supervisor, you said working working nights, third shift, and then uh, overseeing operations for North America for Goodyear, and now out on your own. And we're going to talk a little bit about what you're up to towards uh, later off in the in the conversation. But I do want to dig into your career at Goodyear, and um, you know you you you've seen sort of I guess all aspects of of management in operations. And I'm curious, Billy, for you, what um, what were some key points in your career that defined your approach to leadership? I'm especially interested to hear maybe from your early days as a floor-level supervisor, uh, were there some key moments in your career that influenced how you behave or came to behave as a leader? Absolutely. And and it, it for me it started. I remember I had theory X, theory Y type of management. Theory X is really force authoritarian, and theory Y was kind of they they called it a little fluffy style leadership where you were actually appealing to the worker, being very nice to the worker. And I noticed theory X when I was a young manager. I could be abrasive and you know very strong handed, the iron fist. And they did what I I I would ask them to do as long as I was in front of them. But when I left, that level of loyalty, engagement, that went away. As I started to grow and I realized the value proposition of a human being. As a human being, we want to be valued more than anything in the world. To be valued and respected. And, and, and that's why I say if you make people visible, they'll make you valuable. And so at that point, I realized I learned everyone's name every night. I made sure I saw eye to eye with each one of my 37 employees. I knew their name. And there, there I started the Billy Taylor two foot rule. You get within two feet of me, I make sure I say hello. I I didn't care if you like me or not. I'm still going to say, Matt, how are you doing today? And mm. at that point, my team started to set milestones. My team started to break records. But as a leader on a journey to excellence or when you're leading transformations or when you're leading teams, that that human need to need to feel valued and respected was the greatest lesson I learned because it also brings a level of influence that you as a leader possess. And that that trait took me throughout my career. Because at some places, I went to some places in the deep south. And as an African-American leader, I remember sitting in my office and asking the question, why would they follow me? Why? And at that point, when you start talking about values and those type of things, and people see that in you and it's authentic, all that other stuff goes out the window. All that other stuff, you know, I remember the person that really made it come to light in my mind was a union official that was staunch, very, very abrasive. And when I got to this plant in Tyler, Texas, I actually went head on with him to say, hey, here's where I stand on my standards. I see here's where you stand. But here's where I'm not budging. And he came back to me. He became my greatest ally 
to make a long story short, but I remember the plan started to to hit new performance milestones, and he became my voice, my informal voice of of reasoning uh, with people that were stuck in their old ways. But his comment to me was, when my replacement came, he's and he had tears in his eyes. He says, "Young man, it's a pleasure to meet you. Welcome to welcome to Tyler, Texas." But you're replacing someone that I trust and I respect because he shows trust and respect amongst us. We have to earn it. But he says, you don't have big shoes to fill. You have big hearts to fill. And when he said that to me, I went back to the day when I remember seeing him reading that magazine in the morning when he should have been working. And I knew he was a strong union cohort. And I walked by him, and then I walked back, and I thought, this is going to be a fight. And I remember my heart fluttered. My heart fluttered. I didn't want to go approach him, but I remember something that was told to me in my past is what you accept, you cannot change. And a standard isn't what you write down. A standard is what you walk by and when you don't say anything. And so I noticed leaders that work with people, and I'm going back to the same premises of respect and values. I'd walk by a person not wearing their PPE and I see leaders and season season leaders wouldn't say anything. Or I'll see someone point at someone not wearing their PPE, kind of acknowledge them that you need to put your PPE on. All you're doing is changing the standard. I would all stop. And at that point, we're going to get PPE right now, right then. And then when it got bigger than me, I remember painting a yellow line on the floor that says, once you come out of that locker room and go beyond this line, if you don't have PPE on, then you're in violation. I don't have the ch time to chase all you. So what I did is make a robust standard to fit my values so that I could be hard on the process and lead easy on the people. Yeah, I think, I mean, you, you, you've said a lot there, but... There's so much talk these days about things like servant leadership and how do you connect with workers. And you said a couple of things. It's not just the social side. It's not just about, it's of course, important to know who people are, their names and interacting with them as human beings, but also uh, managing the environment people work in effectively. Like you said, if... Uh, the standard is whatever management accepts to be the standard. And as soon as management walks by something they know is wrong, they're sending the message that it's actually right. And you can go ahead and continue doing that. And so it's 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 both things. It's knowing who people are and it's respecting them in a way where they can get work done safely and effectively. Absolutely. And both things. They are. And, and just really while you were talking, think about you and I, our relationship. We knew of each other. We've seen each other. And remember when, when, when we got to the event and we were talking books and it was like, okay, look, Billy, I'll sell you books. I'm like, yeah. And we came up with an agreement right there on the spot, but it wasn't no worry. It was all trust. Right. It, you and I had strict trust. And that's what we got here to this day. But it was like, wow, you know what? I can respect 
Matt, I definitely, I, I want to be on a podcast. I want to, based on the way you treated me, it comes back to how you treated me. Just think about it. And if you really reflect on that, right? Well, you're just a really nice guy, Billy, and obviously very talented. So, I mean, I've I'm, honestly, for our audience, I'm a little embarrassed about how long it's taken me to get you know, I guess, because, <laughs> I mean, um, you know, you've you had so many great things to say where we first met at that GBNP. Actually, we met at the AME conference in uh, 2022, I think. I didn't get to see you speak there, but at GBNP, I did. And, and I mean, you really, I, you blew the whole room away. It was it was amazing. Um, but I mean, let's let's talk about a specific story where all of these things kind of came together. And you talked about it at the GBNP conference. Uh, you know, over your course, uh, over your career at Goodyear. Uh, you worked at, like you said, several plants. There was one in particular. Uh, I believe it, you said it was in uh, Fayetteville, North Carolina. You were assigned a, a, an especially challenging plant. Uh, and I think at the time of the assignment, it may have given you pause because of how challenging you knew it was going to be. Uh, can you share a bit about what that challenge was uh, when you began to face it and how you began to manage that that challenge. Absolutely. And just to, to preface it, I just led, led uh, Goodyear's best plant in Lawton, Oklahoma, and we had just won Shingo. Mm. And so I thought I was going to corporate headquarters. And I get a phone call that said, we want me to go to Fedville, the worst plant in the company. Matter of fact, it had a nickname, Fed Nam. It, oh, it, oh, it was just that bad. The union and the company were fighting. It was just, it's a mess. And they were making 31,000 tires a day, but their their actual demand was 30, 36, 37. And, and so I remember getting there. Again, understanding the value proposition. I showed up on nights. My first day was on nights and no one knew I was coming. I didn't want the fanfare. I didn't want, but I got a chance to know People. And one of the things that I looked at was 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 three things that I, I was really going to focus on. One is how we how we win, right? Mm -hmm. How we're going to win, and it started with deliberate clarity on what winning is and what's the standard. Deliberate ownership, what everyone's owns in that strategy, and deliberate practice. What's going to be the system that we use to daily manage and know the score? and do continuous improvement. And last but not least, how are we going to govern it so that we can sustain the game? So we went to the night shift. It was funny. Uh, union president, I, I, I met him at the plant, and I asked him what's winning, and he had no idea. I asked my staff of 10 people. They had no idea what winning was either on how many tickets we need, how many tires we need to make to fill customer orders. Long story short, we built a connected business model with all of our associates. We brought in visual management to the point where every individual were, instead of running a machine, it felt like they were running a company. And mm. so, and we, we made a plan, we made an agreement with ourselves. We're going to stay away uh, from this, the digital, the, the, the high end type of, uh, uh, and on lights and those, we said we wanted high touch, low tech. Because we wanted to get in the hearts and minds of the people. And as we got mature in, in the process, we would move for 
high tech, lower touch. Hmm. That's because interesting. What, what is it about low tech, high touch? I mean, you're talking about using like simple tools, just just pencil flipping and paper. the red green, right? You're flipping. Yep. You're, you're actually touching the red mm. greens. You're actually writing the data down. You are actually at the individual door. It's getting to the the the, the closest point of impact uh, mm. to to what we do. And, and so again, going back to the human value system, when people feel they own something, they have a different mindset. Totally. And then the any the, and we are, we have a saying: in the absence of ownership comes blame. When people don't know what they own, they tend to blame. And and so what we we did was create these these here centers of of excellence, pockets of excellence, where we could go in. And tire builders started to think like plant managers because they felt they were running a company. And so every machine had its own center of excellence. I think that's um a lot of a lot of people we work with ask, they're sometimes uh, often flummoxed, I'd say, that um, especially early on, like you were saying, uh, working with an organization, they wonder why are we using, paper, pencil, flip charts, things like that, especially uh, in production areas. And it serves, I think, two purposes. One is obviously like your clarity. You want to know where you stand on, say, plan versus actual. If it's a simple, here's the hour by hour, here's where we're supposed to have for production, here's what we actually have for production. And you say, well, you could probably use the computer to automatically populate that data. Yeah, you probably could, but... When somebody actually has to write the number up at the end of every hour, we made 100, we were supposed to make 110, that the person feels something. They feel a sense of responsibility. And even more, you know, if there's a response from management that asks, and curiously, not, not with a sort of uh, threatening manner, but hey, why Why 100 versus 110? What got in your way? Mm -hmm. You begin to build these human connections that I just have a hard time believing you can build if the software is just doing it all for you. It's these simple tools. It's not about, uh, I mean, part of it is, you know, it's simple. You grab the pencil, you write the thing up. You don't need to code anything. But there's something about when a person has to write the number up. You know what I mean? And, and, and think about that. When you're writing it and it's on your machine, that's where that pride thing kicks in. Totally, it's not about embarrassment. Totally, it's totally, about totally. ownership again. 100%. And if, if I walk by and I've got red, 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 red every hour, I feel some type of way. As a person, I feel some type of way. If I have green, 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 I feel some type of way. Right? I was watching the football game last night, the national, the other night, the, the national championship. Uh -huh. Now, when you watch that game, there are two sidelines. Yeah. Two different emotions. Mm. And, and and you think about that. We are wired to win. Mm. We, we rally around winning. Notice when I said, when I went to Fedville, it was how we win. We were very deliberate around letting people know the score. Because as a human being, we are wired to win. We love it. I mean, we go to our kids' soccer game at four years old. 
we're 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 cheering, even though we want everybody to play, we still want to win. And, and so winning and again, winning isn't everything, however, how we win is. Well, how I'm we dig into win. I, I do want to talk a little bit more about some of the things you did to enable that. It is, I think, telling that the first thing you did, you 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 talked about defining uh clarity. So what does winning mean? At LEI, we preach the idea of getting clear on the problem you're trying to solve. Absence clarity around the problem we're trying to solve, it's very hard to make progress with anything. And so you made it clear that you know here's what good looks like, and then you managed to cascade that down throughout the facility so that even at the operator level, they understood how their work tied into that larger objective of plant success. But could you explain that management system a little bit more, Billy? Absolutely. So what we did, and I'll walk through it uh, briefly, we actually, once we understood what the strategy was, and we had mirror exercises where we brought people in and got our, our feel of uh, the environment. And then what we did is I had meetings every day for I think it was four months, every single day, every shift, they were th these were 30 minutes meetings with 30 different people every single day because I wanted everyone to get the message directly from me. Also, they didn't know what winning was. So we bought them football jerseys with the number 38 on it. Everyone in the plant got a custom football jersey that was 38. So they know they knew we needed 38,000 tires a day or we weren't going to make it. At that point, we put management processes in where there were touch points. We had a daily operating review, a weekly operating review, a monthly operating review, but they were by functions and tiers of the organization, not just Billy meetings. Therefore, mm -hmm. we had a structured approach to letting everybody know what they own in that strategy. So even when they had huddles, when we did huddles, we didn't do the typical huddle where everyone walked up and grabbed hands and, and, and sung kumbaya. We didn't do that. We had meetings where we talked about the KPA that delivers the KPI. So basically, you had to flip at the start of your shift. Did you recognize any unsafe conditions? Did you do anything about it? Do you have any equipment issues currently on your machine? Did you do anything about it? When you showed up on your machine, was it clean? When you left your machine, did you leave it clean? So those were KPAs, key performance actions. Now, that gave you the highest probability to be successful throughout your shift. And what we saw was our uptime on equipment went up, our safety numbers improved, but it was driven by the people. They had to take action at the end of their shift so they weren't, there wasn't a typical huddle around, oh, we had no accidents, or there was a near miss on number seven. It started by, did you take care of your own workspace? And so at that point, I had a thousand safety managers. I had a thousand quality managers. Right? I had a thousand maintenance techs. Because now people were now owning it. And then at that point, when we had these CI meetings, it wasn't all about just Kaizen events. We had a process called WorkSIMP, 
work simplification. And so basically we had a process where they could submit these projects and every Friday, if you submitted one and it was put in, we gave you a chance to report out. Hmm. I mean, again, every shift, you there was a five minute report out. And what I tell my leadership team is the report out session isn't a time for you to scrutinize the project. You should have done that before they got to this meeting. This report out is a value proposition. Letting them know that they're value. Letting them know that we appreciate them. And if you did one project, you got a custom T-shirt. You did It was 10 projects, you got a Goodyear sweatshirt. If you did 12 projects, you, you receive your platinum pin and you got an authentic racing jacket. And, and so basically, people felt valued. And let, let me share, share with you the results. We went from 31,000 to 38,000 in less than six months. We, yeah, we actually spent less money and worked less hours to get that product. And it came down to defining winning. That means your what's winning is your standards, aligning the winning, creating a management process with touch points where everyone knew if we were winning or losing at every level of the organization. And last, the execution part, deliberate practice. That's the essence of, of continuous improvement, scientific thinking and deliberate practice. And so we had that robust model where we we could celebrate the red. What I mean by that, we didn't like red. It was psychologically safe to talk mm. about your issues. It's so important uh, to be able to create that space, but that space is only effective uh, when you have that trust between workers and management and different layers of management. Mm -hmm. And uh, you built that in a really short period of time. That's that's remarkable uh, in six months that you managed to do that. But you didn't just do it at a single facility, Billy. What's also impressive is you went on, and correct me if I'm wrong, but you were overseeing operations for all North America for a good year towards the end of your career. And so you were overseeing many plants and mm -hmm. you know, implementing these ideas in a single facility is one thing. Being able to broadly distribute that way of thinking and behaving across many facilities is a whole different challenge, but you did that. And can you share, you know, what, what was different about that challenge and again, how you, how you addressed it? Uh, as leading North America, there, there were 11 facilities and it was the same approach, actually defining and winning, getting everybody to understand right, what's what's winning and what's the standard. And we really focused on CPIs, critical performance indicators. We wanted to make sure everybody zeroed in on what was most important. But we built a center of excellence in the NASCAR center in, in Akron, Ohio. You could walk in this room in 10 seconds or less. You could see if you're winning or losing by plant, by function. And you're talking and so, about uh, sort of a, a large visual management space where you're looking absolutely. at performance across those 11 plants. And it was just for me because I didn't have enough time. And when I were first went into role, the role, I was all over the place. Mm. I didn't have enough hours in a day. When we created this, this, this process, the plant managers actually were part of building a scalable model of what happened in Fayetteville. And so mm. one of the things we said 
that was most critical. And you and it goes back to the question you asked me about lessons I've learned around people. People they don't really resist change as, as it as it is in itself. They resist when change is done to them rather than yeah. with them. To them, yeah. So, so when we sure. walked in the plant, we had a plan, a communication model, an engagement model, where we were going to do it with the team, not to the team. And so that team, every plant, again, they had touch points. I was repeatedly going to see the plants, but it was the leaders of those plants in those shop floors that was driving the change. And so it was a model that, one, we built a model on paper. We white papered it with the key stakeholders. And when they went back to their organization, they took that white paper that we had we scribbled out and did another white paper exercise, right? And so it was connected, but we kept getting newer, better ideas to build a model. Well, how important and do you then, think that was versus just saying, you know, here's the thing Billy did in Fayetteville. Now everybody go do that versus working with the plant leaders. And then you're saying those plant leaders did another exercise to build alignment internally. I mean, how important do you think that exercise was to success? I'll use one word, critical. Mm -hmm. It's critical. And, 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 and here's why I say that, you know, it goes back to a question I asked myself, why would you follow me? Why, if I'm just going to tell you what to do and, you know, you go do this. That's why most organizations fail to be quite honest with you. The leader goes in there and, and, and says, you're going to do this and you, you get malicious obedience. You get them, people are saying, yeah, we'll do it, but they're nodding their head. Well, we won't do it. And and you know what? While they're in front of you, they they will nod their head. But when you leave, they're not bought in. Uh, head coach at uh, Ohio State once, Trussell, I remember him saying, "No shrugs. If we come in this meeting, I'm going to open the floor for you can have whatever dialogue you want, psychologically safe, and we're going to make a decision." When we walk out of this room, if a reporter puts a mic in, in front of you, no shrugs. Shrug while you're in front of us. Shrug now. Rather than going, that, that's our plan. That's our plan. And and so when when teams go out, uh, I know for me, I, I do it with my LinkedXL team today. What do you think? Well, give me some feedback. This is what, how I'm thinking about approaching it. What do you think? I mean, we had a call this at six this morning with the CEO and I'm going through the presentation and when we got the phone, I said, I have another call later today. Give me some feedback. And immediately, these are the things you did well. These are the things you didn't do well. These are the things I think you need to tighten up for the next meeting. Now, I don't like, I remember in my gut, the initial feeling was, right, you know, That's you're, I'm, the, I'm the CEO, right? And, and and that lasted 10 seconds, and I'm like, you're right. And so that's that part where psychological safety, you know, I almost caused Goodyear 
millions. And it wasn't that I wouldn't have cost them. But when an idea was brought up in a meeting I was in, we were going to move some some tires offshore. And I thought, do you know how much fixed cost absorption you're giving away by moving those tires? And it's going to destroy the bottom line. And initially, the person says, don't say anything. This is what we're going to do. And I thought, and it was funny, because when I tell the story now, I thought about, do you want to be right or you want to be dead right? If you're dead right, you're not around to tell anybody anything oh, else. <laughs> so, so, so I walked to my office thinking, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to keep it to myself because I don't want to be dead right. And I, I thought about it for 30 minutes and I thought, that's not Billy. I walked back and told him, here's what we did. He had his financial person do the, the workup. And he called me back. He goes, you're right. If we would have did that, it would have been, Billy, I don't know if you and I would have had a job after that. Mm. Mm. And, and so, but I had that 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 space where he did change with me, not to me, but his initial, his initial approach was, you're going to do what I told you to do. And I almost did. I mm. almost did. You know, and so... I try to keep that 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 boundary where it's psychologically safe, but again, at the same time, I have standards. Well, that's, I, that's, I have uh, standards. it's so important because you can you can say we're creating a psychological uh, a, a safe space where people can raise problems, challenges. But as a leader, if you're not actually listening to those, absolutely, it means absolutely nothing. And people aren't stupid; they're going to realize that pretty quickly, and. Okay. If you don't take action based on what you know, what you were saying there about the KPAs, the the key performance actions, mm-hmm. um, and people are are going to quickly realize that this is all just uh, sort of hocus pocus. It's a show. It doesn't really mean anything. And so, it's not just about listening to people. It's about taking action on what people are telling you. Yeah. One of the biggest components, and and this is the most underappreciated. I'm going to say uh, uh, aspects of continuous improvement. And that's that governance of your actions, of your standards. Mm-hmm. One of the things that we made mandatory at Fayetteville and when I was in corporate America was the action register. The action register says it's documented what you committed to do the date when you're going to get it done and the review of that status when that date comes to fruition. And so why do I say that? Billy Taylor's in the Harry. He's got this board, this action register board up that matches his visual management boards that says it's 30 days in a month. Everybody's named on it. And if you get an action, you walk up and put the sticky note there in a magnet on that day, you're going to give it to me. So what happens is I get called to a meeting. Billy, CEO wants to meet with you. I said, okay, Matt, go ahead and you continue to run the meeting. Oh, Billy, I have another meeting. Okay, Lynn, you go ahead and run the meeting. Okay, guys, uh, let's get the meeting started. All right, now let's go to the action register. Today's the 27th. Who has items due? That process goes on whether I'm there or not. Matt, you're my assistant, whether you're not. That governance process stays there. And guess what? 
ownership starts to prevail where you're like, oh, whether he's there or not, I owe the team. Right. And so that's a big component. Yes. Yeah. When you see everybody else taking action and you're maybe the lone man out, it feels uncomfortable. And that's a that's a good thing. And actually, I guess we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, it's I, I should before we dive into what you're up to today, Billy. I do want to mention you do have a a book, The Winning Link, uh, and that's all about what you've been discussing over the course of this conversation. And uh, I encourage everybody to check it out. We'll put a link in the show notes as well. But um, you know, moving on from Goodyear now, like you said, you're you're out on your own, uh, an organization called Linked Excel where you have a chance to interact with a whole lot of different companies. And over the last few years, for all kinds of reasons, technological change, of course, COVID, the business landscape has just been evolving just crazy rapidly. And I think all leaders are still struggling to keep up with the change that is happening. What are you seeing out there? In terms of you know the big challenges inside of companies uh, that leaders are are grappling with, absolutely. One of the things, and and what we do is where we go in and we architect operating systems. So we don't go in and mm-hmm. say one size fits all. We look at your culture, we look at your tools, your process, and your standards, and we say, here's here's let's help you architect an operating system. And what we see is we look at from people leadership teams. Right, you think about three things, and this is what I've learned coming up. When I'm looking at a team or individuals, I'm looking at character, capability, and chemistry. And when I'm hiring people, I'm developing people, those are three very, very important characteristics of building a team. Those mm-hmm. dynamics are. And so when one of those are out of out of kilter, something normally happens. And that's what I see when I go into teams, right? And, and after COVID, the workforce's mindset's different. It's, it's just different, um, right? It, the people used to work to live, and some people live to work. Today, people want to work and live at the same time. And we have phones and devices that allow us to do that, right? You get the news rapidly, right? It happens in five minutes, you know about it. It's that way in manufacturing. It's that way in operations, whether it's hospitals. So what I'm seeing now is the mindset of the workforce has changed. But the mindset of the leader has stayed the same in some aspects. And, and, and you know, one, once I remember one, one opportunity, one client I was working with, they had a high level of turnover. And the, the, the top leader, one of the top leaders asked me, why isn't it working? Why isn't the operating system working? Why isn't the management system working? And I remember saying, 80% of your leadership team has left the company. You've hired three different workforces. So what I mean by that, if you have 6,600 people, you've hired 1,800 people in a year. And so, again, that type of that type of environment is chaotic. And so what I've seen in the workforce today is 
the plants I've worked in, they don't have a hiring problem in the sense they have a retention problem. They can't keep the people they're hiring. And, and the quality of the talent is slowly deteriorating as well. And it's not that the people aren't capable. It's a mindset. It's a so what 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 the companies I've seen be successful is they're very very deliberate and intentional on how they onboard their associates. The now the amenities they give them uh, in the workplace, those things are changing the culture. But the biggest thing is increasing the level of ownership, things they own inside that process because. The the I, 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 as I call them grown, uh, full blown alligators. That's what this is, right? The the we don't want we're hiring full full blown alligators. Everybody think they're full blown alligator. Well, then I'm gonna give you the responsibility, even if it's on a work sale. Here's what you own in that work sale, and I'm very, very, very deliberate about it. But there's a scoreboard there that says it that we can see it. Those people kind of bow up because recently I was talking to uh, a, a, a VP of an organization with their leaders. And, and she, the one pointed out, she says, Billy, every time they hear the word accountability, they, they draw back, they sit back. It's like a bad word. When they say, when you say ownership, they all bow up. They all bow up. And it's like, accountability is a bad word and it's, it's like you said to me right you can't have one without the other right they go together but it's just the mindset and so what i'm saying is is, is now how do you re-engage uh the workforce of today where they want to work and live mm. they want to work and live well covid certainly reset things where it became possible for a lot of people to separate themselves from where they work and, and, and where they live. But it is interesting, and you're not the only one we've heard this from, but it's a, a retention problem. You know, Companies mm -hmm. can hire people. They just can't keep them. Mm -hmm. And I will say what you're saying is consistent what, with what LEI has seen. It's, it's less about things like compensation, even companies that compensate workers well. They have a difficulty retaining workers because, well, in some cases, the job just may not be, uh, well, in worst case, safe, <laughs> in which case companies really need to address that rapidly. Yes. But it's other things like what you're saying. Uh, people, people, I don't, is there a time in history when somebody wanted to go to work and have no meaning in right. the job that they were doing? I don't, and that hard to believe. Um and there's got to be a way where companies can offer something more than just a paycheck. And that's what companies, I think, are a lot of them are, are struggling to do. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, that's where we think, you know, the, the technical tools of Lean are great for improving business performance, but they're also great for providing meaning to the worker. Like you're saying, giving them ownership over a process, over their job, the opportunity to change it and improvement and understanding how their work connects to the larger's, to the organization's larger purpose. And uh, absent doing that, I, I think companies will continue to struggle 
to to retain workers. But it also, what you're saying there, it's um, we've heard that too, <laughs> where management is struggling with a new generation of workers who have uh, maybe a different mindset about things. I was talking to somebody on just another podcast. Uh, they're, they're two former Honda executives, uh, uh, Laura Harrington and Frank Pallack. But they talked about what they're seeing in their own, uh, now they're off doing their own consultancy around, um, you know, uh, yes, people are, are, are good with ownership, a little uncomfortable with accountability, uh, but ownership doesn't make any sense unless you're accountable to the performance results. And, you know, Lara Harrington, she, she was a chief engineer for uh, the last product she led was the Honda Passport. She made an interesting point, which was you can't, it's, it's hard to have, you're, make, you're making it harder on the owner if you don't also assign them accountability because you've actually stripped them of responsibility. Yes. yes. And that takes away their ability to get the job done. Yeah. And you have to, I think it's important as a leader to actually make sure that people have that type of clarity on what it is they do own inside the strategy. Mm. Right. Because when people build strategies, they think it's strategy plus execution equals results. Well, it sounds simple, and it really is. If you focus on strategy plus who owns what in the strategy so you can execute. And so when you're very clear about that ownership piece, it's important. You know, uh, my I, had a, I grew up in a real – my mother was very firm, very strong around what you own, right? And and I often tell a story, or I think you heard me say when I played football, she didn't care about me scoring touchdowns. Although I was the best player on the team, if I made less than a B, I couldn't play. Now, I thought football was the main thing. Now, no, she had deliberate clarity on you being educated is the main thing. And if you can't do these KPAs, make your grades, clean your room, if you can't do those KPAs, then you can't play. Hmm. Your key performance actions, because winning for me is you being productive. And the minute I made an F, she took me off the team. We were undefeated. But I remember what she said to me. And, and, and she would tell me, son, in the absence of ownership comes blame. You own nothing. Everything's my fault. I'm wrong for taking you off the team. I'm wrong for not letting you play. How can I do that to you? Mom, that, Mom, you're not fair. Really? Think about that in the workforce. That same thing happens. And then some leaders try to overcompensate like some parents that support that bad behavior, that support that, and wonder what happens down the road when the results don't come out like you expected. Again, what she would say to me is, and this is advice on raising kids, if you fight their battles, you will steal their victories. Well, uh, and that's... <laughs> if you think... Well, it's interesting. You're... you're you, <laughs> Sounds like your mom could have been president of Toyota if she really yes, wanted to be. It's, yes. it's, it's incredible because it's it's the same thing when we talk about um, not giving the answer, 
but helping coach somebody on how to solve a problem. You do that for a lot of what one simple reason you do that is because you probably don't have the right answer (laughs) because you're not so close to the work. But as importantly, maybe more importantly, uh, you're taking responsibility away from the person. And in doing that, you're taking away any sense of value pride that this person may be able to, you know, achieve in solving the problem on their own and done at scale at high levels of leadership that can be really toxic inside an organization. That's right. Remember the old saying, and I bet you can, can, can finish this for me. It's old grandpa saying, let me, uh, right. Rather than give you a fish, I'd rather teach you you how to fish. Yeah. Right. And so why, why do I want to teach you how to fish? Because grandma's grandpa's saying, I'm not going to be here always. And if I wasn't around, you'd still know how to feed yourself. And you can probably teach me some nuances around how to fish. Because my son and my daughter are two of my biggest mentors today. Right? I mentored them growing up, but now there's a, a part of life, a part of leadership, and a new dynamic that I need coaching on. Because guess what? Their friends are the workforce now. Their friends are, and you know what? In in most, in, in, and again, I try to, like you said, I break down those, those complex topics sometimes so that I really can re- relate to them. And it's like, you know what? I remember asking dad how to treat a woman. And I remember, dad, I got my first date. How do you treat a woman? And my mother laughs. She goes, why are you asking him? He has no idea. Ask me, right? All he knows is what I tell him. So, so it's that way in leadership. I'm asking the millennials of today. I'm asking the 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 the, the matured workforce of the day. Those are my new mentors. And I still retain my old mentors, but I've got a different counter perspective today. Sometimes they're the same. Sometimes they're not. You know, my son says, Dad, you love LinkedIn. You need to move over to Instagram. You got these things because my demographic, this is where we hang out. And and so, right, that's the kind of coaching leaders have to be open to. You have to be open to it. You have to ask sincerely. Correct. And uh, listen and take action. Yes. Demonstrate you actually cared about what the person said. Um. Well, uh, Billy, this was a tremendous conversation. I think you certainly left me with a lot to think about, and I think you left the listeners with a lot to think about. Again, um, if you want to learn about Billy's book or check it out, it's called A Winning Link. Uh, You can get it on Amazon, Um, so please check that out. And Billy, thanks again for joining me here on the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's been a true pleasure. I'd like to thank Billy once again for joining me on the podcast and thanks to you all for listening until next time.